Hello, friend. Thank you, as always, for joining me here on The Tully Show. And a big thank you to everyone who is also already joining me and Jesse May Peluso on my other pod, The Deuce. It was behind the Patreon paywall for over a year, but now it is available for free wherever you pod, wherever you listen to this. You can also find me and one of the all-time favorite Tully Show guests, the people's champ, forging the bonds of friendship by insulting each other mercilessly at every possible turn if you like jesse may on the tully show and i know thousands of you did you're sure to like this as well it's literally the exact same thing so when you're done listening to this conversation with noted rock critic and former co-worker ira robbins come find me and jesse may peluso on the deuce okay you ready to start this show <laughs> Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before, and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Oh, Coming to you live, on tape, from an above-ground basement in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, an esteemed music journalist for over 50 years, a founder of the seminal rock Bible, Trouser Pressed, a novelist, the publisher of books from not one, but two recent Tully Show guests, and a long time ago, former colleague to boot. Hello and welcome. Nice to see you, Ira Robbins. So before... We even uh, get into talking about your stuff. I mentioned in the intro that you have now, uh, you're a multi, you were already a multi-hyphenate. You've added another hyphen and become a publisher. The books that I referred to in the intro specifically recently spoke to Jim Sullivan, who's backstage and beyond. Volume one is out now. Volume two coming soon. I'm looking forward to speaking to him again when that comes out. Also, Mitchell Cohen, who wrote that really, really delightful guy who wrote that really delightful Arista book looking for the magic. Ira, I see you also have three volumes of your rock journalism and criticism in book form. A good reason to be a, a publisher. No one can tell you when to stop. Right. I've, I, as a self-publisher, uh, the, the, the bad part is figuring out where to stick all the books that nobody buys has been the downside that I find. I hope you don't have that problem. No, I don't be actually, because so far I've been doing um, print on demand, which ah basically saves you the misery of having to buy piles of books and store them someplace. Uh, so yeah, I mean, there are limited number of copies, but there can be an unlimited number of copies depending on the demand. That's smart. I wish I had this conversation with you a couple of years ago. Um, uh, let's start uh, before the beginning of your career. I, I read up on you a little bit. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I knew you, we worked together for several years and I got the impression from a lot of the people that I, that we worked with that you were a, a pretty heavy dude but I, I honestly I didn't realize at the time what a strong imprint you've left on uh, the, the, the the consensus critical appraisal of so much music literally until I started doing this show a few years ago I'm the kind of guy I live in LA now I sit in a lot of traffic I'm the kind of guy while I'm listening to the second television album I'm reading the Wikipedia of the second television album and I can't tell you how many times after the first paragraph of recorded in this month and so-and-so is in the band, the second paragraph is Ira Robbins of Trouser Press said at the time, quote, 
you don't strike me as the kind of guy who goes through and edits Wikipedia yourself to add yourself to a lot of entries. I think this is an organic thing that has happened. I read lots of people have chosen on the internet to give you the final word on lots of the greatest albums of the rock era. I don't know how much you are aware of that. Very flattering. I didn't know that because um, at one point I thought that Wikipedia was very deficient in its um, citation of trouser press entries and things like that. I mean, you know, the trouser press record guides of which there are five has reviewed, you know, thousands and thousands of records, um, a lot of which do not get reviewed or have not been reviewed elsewhere. You know, I mean, we were reviewing, you know, indie bands from the 70s that just people, you know, have long since forgotten. And so when I see an, a Wikipedia entry and it like, you know, cites, you know, some, some who, I don't know, I'm not going to say anybody that I'm going to offend, but like cite somebody else, you know, I think, well, they should have the trouser press reference as well, because I mean, a lot of times, you know, we might have profiled them in the magazine, whatever. And and so I actually spent a couple of days, I, I retired from my regular job three years ago. So I've had kind of time to do things that I otherwise would have spent earning a living. Um, and and I went in one day, for a couple of days, and just kind of like taught myself how to do the HTML on Wikipedia, which is really ugly. I mean, it's just awfully designed. And put in just a lot of references. And I also discovered that there were like a lot of dead ends in, in the entries that I was looking at and tried to fix them. And I spent couple of days, I maybe did a hundred or a hundred of them or something like that. Two days later, I see an email that says that some jackass has reverted every single one of my entries. Really? I, I guess some people are just so proprietary about it's going to be their way, even if their way is, is, is clearly the wrong way. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't mean to get in the weeds on this, but like, I, I mean, I, I have indeed tried to like increase the... Per the visibility of trouser press on Wikipedia and failed. But if, if there's stuff there that quotes me great or other people on trouser press, fine. I mean, you know, we were there doing what we were doing at a time when there was not a lot of other people focusing on the kind of music we were focusing on. You know, I mean, the reason we started trouser press magazine in 1974 was because we felt that there was a lot of music that wasn't being covered in the music press. You know, we literally build ourselves as, uh, this was a not a joke, but we didn't stick with it very long. The alternative to the alternative alternatives. So, you know, we just kind of like tried to to zig where everybody else was zagging. I, I, I gather as much, and it seems like you sort of had the good luck that every time a sort of vein may have been running out of steam, some new vein opened up for you that was A, being somewhat neglected by the mainstream press, B, ended up being something that was very worthy of uh, appraisal consideration, and we're now all lucky that you were there interviewing these people at the time, say, uh, when you moved on from the, 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 the late British Invasion stuff or the glam rock stuff, to the early punk stuff, which I guess I gather was not... I'm assuming Rolling Stone has uh, offices in midtown Manhattan. I guess for them was not worthy of getting on, I think, a, a token probably in those days under a dollar, going down three or four stops and maybe seeing what all the buzz was about. But um, I, I'm, I'm glad that at least you all were there. I mean, to be fair, I think Rolling Stone's writers were probably were quite aware of what was going on. I think the magazine uh, had a, a, a vision of itself as covering, you know, more commercially minded stuff, you know, and, and I think, you know, and, and ironically, Trouser Press had the same mistaken idea for a while, which was that we saw ourselves in our tiny little world as being a national publication, or in fact, 
to, to a tiny degree, an international publication. And so the bands that we were seeing at CBs and Maxes and, you know, the 82 and Tramps and stuff like that, you know, we kind of, it was my view that it was a, a mistake to cover those bands for a national magazine because there was no way that people could actually hear them outside right. of New York. Now, I mean, it was a very short-sighted view. And, and of course, it was somewhat predicated on the, the notion that these bands were never going to be any more famous than they had become playing CBGBs on a Tuesday night. You know, I mean, it was it was kind of conventional wisdom in New York in 1976 that, you know, Blondie, Ramones, television, you know, they were our little bands, you know, and we loved them and they were like our friends to some degree. And, and you know, that was as far as it was ever going to go. I mean, none of us imagined that these bands were going to become like number one, you know, global superstars or cult figures of enormous repute, you know, or, you know, successful musicians. I mean, in, in, in the traditional sense, I mean, they, they existed outside of that universe and we never expected there was any way into that universe. And so trouser press's view was like, well, we can't cover them until they put out records. So, you know, when, when, when Patty Smith put out her single on Murr, we reviewed that, but I mean, it wasn't until the Ramones had an album that we thought it was really smart to cover them. So what we had was a column that we ran every issue for a while called New York Notes, where we would kind of like patronizingly write like 500 words about a band that we really liked. Um, and that was kind of as much as we would give them, you know, kind of like we wanted to make sure they were properly ghettoized so that no one would think that we were treating them the same way that we were treating like a prog rock band that had an album on CBS. I understand. Not a great, not a great vision. So I want to... Uh talk through the, the the eras of trouser press and then zero in on some specific acts but uh let's start before the beginning so i know that you started off selling trouser press literally approaching people at outside of venues inside of venues just trying to sell you know copies of it i read that you had some experience with that sort of direct to consumer sales of publications so to speak from having uh, been somebody who distributed Black Panther newspapers on street corners. Again, I knew you. I don't know you very well. I didn't have you pegged as a Black Panther guy, Ira. Like, tell me, tell me everything. I I feel like the uh, I don't know if the Black Panthers are having a, a moment again. I recently watched the Judas and the Black Messiah, which is a couple years ago now. And uh, if you've seen the the terrific uh, Summer of Soul documentary that that Questlove, which in the Black Panthers figure into that. I'm very interested. I know very little. I would love to hear your impressions, your experiences. Do what to what extent or whatever you were up close and personal with that movement, both rise and fall. Uh, well, to begin with, I was a red diaper baby, which is an expression that you may or may not may or may not know. It means my parents were were left wingers slash communists. I see. Um, I went to a commie summer camp that was. Um, run by progressives who hired uh, the children of the Rosenbergs, who had been recently executed for sedition, uh, for uh, spying. Uh, they were our counselors. Um, there was another, I, I had a, a fellow counselor whose father was the only uh, person on North America ever jailed solely for membership in the Communist Party. Um, uh, the, the, the grandchildren of the singer paul singer actor paul robeson were camp fellow campers i mean we were just all like you know little hot-headed left-wingers um and i went to marches on washington anti anti-war marches on washington starting when i was 11 and with my mother and you know um i was raised in that world you know i mean i mean the the, the 
the books that my father had on his shelf were like the collected works of Vladimir Lenin. You know, so I mean, I the first book report I did in, in I think, seventh or eighth grade was on the Communist Manifesto. That's that like, got a lot of attention. I yeah, mean, you got to remember, like the 60s were not a time when, you know, these things were viewed as just, you know, part of the, the political discourse. They were viewed as like the Red Menace. So anyway, so I grew up through like the New Left and I was involved with a couple of organizations and went to a lot of marches and knew a lot of people who were involved in this stuff. And I was involved with one organization that was fraternal with the Black Panther Party. Uh, and as such, we did stuff with them. And that's how I ended up selling Black Panther papers on the street corner. I mean, I also distributed political literature and, you know, campaigned for a couple of communist candidates that, that ran for office in New York. Um, you know, so I was I was in that world, you know, um, and remained so up until pretty much high school. And then I kind of moved on. Let, let, let me ask you this question. Not, I don't expect you to be an authority on that organization or movement, of course, but it seemed to me that it's it's largely, until recently, it was largely forgotten. You heard, I knew names like Huey P. Newton or whatever, but they didn't really figure into the story that we all, uh, that every one of us received about America in the 20th century. It's kind of surprising to look back and to see how big that movement got, how much headway it seemingly made, given the fact that by the time I was conscious of the world around me, it had utterly disappeared. So how, or so it seemed to me, how did it go so so fully extinct relative to the, the relative prominence that it had? Oh, well, that was the, the COINTELPRO efforts by the federal government. Mm. Um, I mean, they basically either arrested or killed everybody of, of, of significance, leaving only the most wrong-headed uh, characters to be to destroy the organization. It's a complicated story, and there's of course. Been plenty of books written about it. But I mean, the political climate got very complicated as the resistance to their movement became more um, forceful. You know, and you know, Fred Hampton was killed in, in Chicago, and you know, um, Huey Newton was arrested and, and tried, and you know, Bobby Seale was part of the Chicago Eight. You know, I mean, I mean, the, the, a lot of a lot of resistance was thrown up against them and you know in a, in a lot of ways they self-destructed i mean there were there were people as i said who who took leadership roles who had very um bad ideas about what the organization direction should be and they basically undid it so you know i mean people i mean people like eldridge cleaver were really um pernicious for that organization um but a lot of people i mean the panthers were great when they were when they were in their prime and they were basically destroyed but then you know there were a lot of friends going at the same time fds you know fragmented into the weathermen and the weathermen became this incredibly destructive force you know that turned you know the the what was left of the anti-war movement into this kind of you know lunatic fringe of idiots bombing things for no good reason um i actually uh listened to a really great podcast by the son of bernadine dorn who did a huge thing about the weathermen um and and his parents role in it in the in the, in the way that she was a leader of the group um but yeah I, it was a very difficult time and i mean you know i was in it mainly as a uh an anti-war activist and you know it, it got much more complicated after a while all right we'll move back to uh to, to trouser press which is obviously more your uh specific area of expertise um you build yourselves initially as america's only british rock magazine is that so yeah, that was a lift from Cream, of course. 
which called itself America's Only Rock and Roll Magazine. Okay, I didn't I didn't get or the America's reference. America's Only Rock Magazine. Yeah, uh, Cream built itself as America's Only Rock Magazine, and we build ourselves as America's Only British Rock Magazine. And you mailed a copy of the first uh, issue to Pete Townsend of the Who, and received a reply. I did. That is in fact true. I remember opening the mailbox and you know basically shitting myself, going yeah. like, "Oh my god, he wrote me back." Did he like write the return address and everything? Did he actually fill out the envelope, or do you have people to do that? No, no. It was it was it's a handwritten letter. Uh, the boathouse, Twickenham, London. You know, Twickenham, England. That was his with a postcode. I don't remember the postcode. Yeah, no, it it, it was him. He, it was not uncommon for him to write letters to people. Um, I mean, I have a lot of friends who who were fans at the time. I mean, we were huge Who fans, uh, and you know, he 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 answered a lot of mail. Um, yeah, I gather you were probably still are a massive who fan and i couldn't help but notice as i read through you know i obviously only went through a very small percentage of the stuff that you have written before speaking to you today the number of uh stray bullets that roger daltrey seems to catch in your writing which is i i'm not a, i'm not a who fan to be perfectly honest the appeal has always sort of eluded me and it's really funny to me and i guess i kind of get it i'm a big oasis fan but i'll make fun of noel and liam all day but it really came up a lot I'm re i was curious we'll talk about the smiths later i wanted to hear what you thought about the smiths and you said not since the who had so formidable a talent been married to such an embarrassing nay pitiful lead singer i noticed elsewhere you repeated the sentiment you're talking about tears for fears and you go you know it's the thing where the talented guy just makes a band with his best friend you know like the who so what what's your deal with roger daltrey as a massive who fan i'm, I'm not sure what, what what i was thinking when i wrote that quote i don't even remember that quote but um what, i don't even know what it's from but uh uh i you know i think roger was a great singer in the who but I think, you know, he was always the least interesting of the four of them. You know, I mean, Pete obviously was the visionary and the, you know, the creative genius. You know, Moon, to me, was like the greatest rock drummer that ever lived. Um, and Antwistle was a bass player of like peerless ability and, yeah. and you know, and a very strange character as well. You know, and and Dolce was just kind of like the, you know, the, the working guy that sang. You know, I mean, I, I'm not taking anything away from his singing. I, I don't think I would like those records as much if he didn't sing them. Um, but, you know, like a, certainly as time went by, you know, the, the battles between Townsend and Daltrey, um, which were played out in the press for years, you know, sort of always made Daltrey seem, you know, less, less invested in what the group really was about than Pete was, you know, um, then I read Roger's memoir, which is really charming and, and very entertaining. And, and I came away this is recently. I mean, it was a couple of years ago. I came away with a much clearer understanding of how the power dynamics in a rock band of that caliber are really difficult. You know, I mean, his view was, and as was all Antwistle's, uh, was that if Townsend didn't write a bunch of songs so they could make an album and then go on tour, their their business model just went in the shitter. You know, like they couldn't they couldn't tour if they didn't have an album. And if Townsend didn't feel like writing an album for them, like maybe he'd write an album for himself or not write anything at all or simply, you know, lie in, a, in an alleyway, you know, guzzling Remy Martin, you know, then Daltrey's professional life was on hold, you know, and which is why he made those solo records, you know, which we never really liked, um, you know. Uh, but I did become much more sympathetic to be, to realize that, you know, they were at, at Townsend's mercy 
because of the creative dynamic of the band, you know, and I never really thought about that before. You always, you grow up thinking, you know, in the same way that when you're six years old, you think that the music on the radio is being made in the studio while you're listening to it. Sure. You know, that you also imagine that rock bands are these unified, you know, entities that think alike and that do, you know, that function for the good of the, of the entity. And they're not, they're like individuals who have completely different priorities. You know, frequently they have very un, un, even lives that have nothing to do with each other. I mean, think of being, you know, in the New York Dolls with Johnny Thunders and wondering whether he's going to be too smacked out to play on a given night. You know, I mean, that hadn't really occurred to me before. And, and I, I feel a lot more sympathetic now. Um, Flashing forward a little bit, where did you ultimately come down on Oasis? Because I thought of you in, first of all, you know, you the focus of Trouser Press was to, to a large extent British music. Obviously, British music had this great reawakening. I mean, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on, on Britpop in, in general. I was... Once I finally grew out of my hair metal phase, that was the next stuff for me, the, the suede and, 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 and all those. But on paper, you know, you, paper will only get you so far. Everyone always talks about Oasis as being Beatles clones. Noel would tell you, no, we're Beatles, Who, and Sex Pistols clones. We, he's like, I just decided those are the three best bands, so I'll emulate all of them. I think melodically, the Beatles have so much of a stronger, more recognizable signature, it may have been a little bit harder to catch the Sex Pistols stuff, the Who stuff. But songs like, I know you know, like if you remember the B-side Acquiesce, that owes so much more to the Who than it owed, okay. than it could ever be uh, owed to the Beatles. I, I read your reviews of the first two albums, the only two Oasis albums that, that really matter. They were complimentary, but I often have a hard time telling with your, with your uh, writing, are you complimenting it or do you like it? Did you like Oasis? I would... That's a very astute observation. Uh... uh... I'm not sure that that I, I always liked Oasis. I'm not sure I ever respected them. That's fair. You know, I, I think, I mean, I saw Oasis at Wetlands when they first came to the U.S. And they played for, I don't know, 150 people. And we were standing, Dave Schultz and I, my, my Trouser Press co-founder, and I were standing, I don't know, six feet from the stage. And the stage was 12 inches high. Um, you know, and I, I was impressed. I mean, I thought they were pretty exciting, you know, and, 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 they had a really, you know, together, they were, they, they had a, a vision, you know, they, they had a sound, they knew what they were doing, um, you know, but as time went on, I mean, you know, and I like some of the songs a lot, but as time went on, you know, like my, my regard for them never really grew, you know, they just kind of seemed like, like, a, you know, like Oasis would have been great in 1973 if they were a glam band that had platform boots because their music, and, and, and I say this with all due affection, is essentially junk. You know, like, I mean, they're, they're not, they're not a, a great band that makes, you know, profound music that has, you know, really, you know, enormous creativity and, and really serious lyrics. They're kind of like a slapdash group of fun guys who make, you know, hit records, um, which is fine. I'm, I'm not making a value judgment there, but it doesn't make me, you know, like, I don't know, throw, throw another group up there that's, you know, sort of in the same era, like the Stone Roses. I mean, the Stone Roses slay me. You know, I still can listen to like the first Stone Roses album and even the second one and just become just marvel at the, you know, the the, the genius of those of, of that music. You know, Oasis, I never felt like that about. Yeah, it's I actually want to ask you about the the glam rock stuff from the 70s. Next, it's 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 an apt comparison. I think we just sort of if you're a music person, you think 
uh, I don't know, electronic music, pop music. It can be genius, but it's likely, it's overwhelmingly likely to be simple. Prince would be like the outlier. Rock music, just of its nature, the instrument, guitar, is going to be a little bit more intricate, but like uh, there are great, uh, among the, the best Oasis songs are literally T-Rex rewrites. And I'm a big Mark Bolin fan, maybe not as big as you are, his greatness did not lie in making complex music. He made simple, great, simple pop music that happened to be made with a guitar, which wasn't so unusual in the seventies in the pre-electronic age. But I, I right. guess, I guess you're right. They kind of just, uh, more harken back to that than anything. I want to ask you about, you wrote a novel about, um, Mark Bolin. I, I guess my, what I'm wondering is among other figures in that, in that scene, um, I recently, I don't know why I just got around to watching the Velvet Goldmine movie. I can't, I can't recommend it all that highly, but it was interesting. It obviously had a point of view about, we all remember the basic bullet points. Lou Reed starts wearing makeup, Bowie, Iggy Pop, Mark Bolin, that's about it. I guess, what was it about that era that you feel has become forgotten or misunderstood? What did you want to convey about that era that you think the, maybe people like myself who weren't around to see that stuff the first time around aren't getting about the way it like, quote unquote, really was? I'm not sure that's exactly my motivation. I mean, actually, Velvet Goldmine was part of my motivation because I really hated that movie. Oh, so bad. Um, but, but, but it did have a, a kernel of truth in it. Um, and the kernel of truth was that the people that motivated, uh, here's the kernel of truth, that while the artists were playing at being gay or being, you know, trans, I don't mean, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, transgressive, right? I mean, they were playing at being, you know, like breaking all the rules of the, and the, 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 the boundaries of gender. Um, the people who were actually running the show were all gay men. You know, uh, not all of them. I mean, obviously not Tony Visconti, the producer of, of, of Bolin and Bowie, but, you know, a lot the managers and the label men and, you know, a lot of the people around glam rock were gay. Um, and that was kind of the point of Velvet Goldmine, right? I mean, it was to kind of claim glam rock as a gay creative enterprise, which is fine, you know, but, but what I felt was that the artists were always just playing at it. You know, and I thought that was that was kind of an interesting aspect of it. You know, that there was the whole idea of glam rock was artifice. You know, I mean, I mean, these guys weren't men who thought that they're that they thought they were women. I mean, who, who felt that they were they had gender dysmorphia. They, these were, you know, Slade were like, you know, tough yabos from Wolverhampton, you know, who thought it'd be funny to put, you know, to dress up like, you know, like like goofballs. Right. You know, and, and the fashion and the. The, the the spoken word and the the whole vibe was to be just kind of like do whatever you want you know break all the rules and so what I wanted to do I mean my motivation for writing the novel was that basically very simple was that I felt that the era had been largely forgotten you know I mean there were not a lot of groups that you could cl characterize as glam rock and as, as Bowie once pointed out you know there was very little in common musically with the groups they just dressed alike yes you know. Um, but but I felt that it was a really wonderful time. I mean, for me, it was like a re a resurgence of bubblegum. You know, bubblegum was like studio bands. It was different in that sense. Bubblegum were studio bands, but they were garbage and they were like so much fun, right? And then when like the suite came out with Little Willie, that was a bubblegum song played with big guitars. And it was like the funnest record I'd heard in years. And what I wanted to do, I'm kind of getting around to the answer to your question is what I wanted to do 
with the novel was to inhabit that time, to kind of put it, bring it to life so that people who weren't there might understand something about what it was all about. You know, that like that the 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 artifice, the 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 condescension to the audience, you know, it was all just being silly, right? I mean, like they was these were adults playing music for 12-year-olds, basically. And the audience in England was very young. You know, Boland's fans were little kids. I mean, the Bay City Rollers fans were really little kids. This was not like an adult music. On the other hand, I was in London in 1974, and I saw Sparks at the height of their British superstardom play the rainbow, and it was complete pandemonium, and I loved it. You know, it was just amazing to see, the, you know, the, the the kind of enthusiasm they sparked. And I just I just love that era. I feel like like no one really uh, remembers it very well. And I thought it'd be, it was a time and place that I would like to have, have lived through personally it's interesting i've never really thought it in those terms you know we in in those uh, thought of it in those terms we talk so much about um uh you know cultural appropriation these days and as somebody who's not a classic rock person at all i feel like i have this um really unwelcome view on a lot of the greatest rock bands of all time because i listen to i listen to the rolling stones and i don't like the rolling stones and i'm like these guys wow these guys all lived in castles and the people that they were pretending to be died penniless they could have at least let them kato kalen you know they could have let albert brooks kato kalen in the guest house but they it, that that never happened and you're right because as somebody i got into music at the tail end of of glam metal and then i got into bands like suede because to me i hated the grunge i wanted the glamorous rock thing and that was the way to keep that thing alive and in new york city at the fringes of that there were glam metal bands still hanging around hadn't gotten them didn't care to get the message that they weren't going to get the record deal and and that was where you found the uh less successfully closeted gay <laughs> acts you know and i interviewed the songwriter and producer desmond child and you know he said i was allowed to work with solo performers there was this idea that i could handle Alice Cooper one on one, but as a gay man, I could I could wrangle one straight man. I could not wrangle four straight men. So I always uh, knew that there was, and it's funny because it was like they obviously wanted. I mean, I don't want to say the gayness. They wanted they wanted the talent. They wanted the songs, but the the um the world and the worldview that was informing that talent they wanted, but it was the privilege accepted straight white guys who got to actually benefit from it. I never really thought of those two in the same terms. And I, I think the analogy holds, if I'm not mistaken. Hmm. Um, okay. Let's, uh, let's talk about the early punk era. Uh, did you see Misfits play live? No, I never did. Oh, okay. Well, there goes that question. I'm so curious because they're from my neck of the woods in, uh -huh. in, in New Jersey. The word legendary just gets just, it's almost become annoying. It just gets so thoroughly debased. Legendary often is like a byword. I feel like in press releases for like, this person is forgotten, but you should have, you know, trust me, they were a thing at the time. That's like the polite way to say that the, the misfits seem sort of legendary to me. It's kind of hard to imagine an actual misfits show happening and the sort of and i say this in the most positive way possible the sort of cretins who would have turned out to see the original uh misfits did they not even make it over to the city were they just playing in like lodi new jersey where did they where did they play well i actually don't know because that was really outside my ken i mean i never really would have i would never have gone to see the misfits that mm -hmm. was too it was too punk for me i okay. mean like my my punk enthusiasm was more like the dead boys, you know, like, you know, the small boar, you know, kind of like 
Stooges type punk, not not so much, you know, like like I mean, the Misfits clearly were the progenitor of, or at least the precursor of a lot of, you know, speed metal and stuff like that. I mean, they were like, you know, loud and doomy and gloomy. And I mean, I was never a Black Sabbath fan, so you know that that whole you know goth side of, of, of punk never really attracted me. And so, you know, I mean, I'm sure they played New York. They must have played, you know, Lemoore's. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah but, means, um, right. I mean, the the only thing that I thought made the Misfits legendary, and this is sort of putting the the horse behind the cart, is that their records got really valuable. You know, I remember seeing like, you know, 15, 20 years ago, people selling Misfits singles for like $500. And I'm like, why is that? You know, I mean, the only single that, that I ever had that was really valuable was the first Bad Brains record, which I guess is sort of the same idea. You know, I mean. Yeah, I mean, I think that as somebody who doesn't, it hasn't re- didn't respond all that strongly to the original you know the first wave of punk i actually i'll take the misfits greatest hits over i mean who are the bands that you would compare them to i'll take them over the ramones greatest hits for me personally i i guess you just had to be there over the sex pistols even over the clash if you just re- talk about the clash as a the punk era once we're, once the clash evolved into being yeah, more of a straightforward yeah. rock band then i then i'll take the clash over the misfits you obviously you obviously oh, uh, don't agree with you, that you got your head up your ass on this <laughs> on this particular topic okay <laughs> see it's funny because to me one of the great things about the misfits is exactly what you were just saying about uh, uh about the suite which is there's this barely disguised bubblegum thing there's all the girl group stuff that informs uh, the hooks of which is like the last place you would expect to find it is on the misfits. But to me, hmm. that's, that's almost all their best choruses. I guess you could kind of say the same about a lot of, uh, a lot of Ramon's stuff. We'll, we'll move on. Um, the, uh, I, I gather that there are a lot of reasons why trouser press m- met its end. But one reason that is, uh, cited is that, as I said, you sort of were able to, jump from one movement to another and as the new romantic era the kind of second wave of first wave uh took hold you sort of uh just just lost interest with that and didn't see an obvious thing to move on to i know that's not the whole story but is that part of the story accurate yeah absolutely i mean you know we we started we'd always been very independent minded and kind of refused to do what we thought was commercially smart uh and then when mtv started our kind of our world got turned upside down a bit by mtv because a they were covering a lot of the same bands that we were covering naturally um b they had access that we didn't have and c they could show and play music and all we could do was talk it was write about it and describe it so we felt like our um our turf had been pretty much uh, stomped on. And so we felt like we were being pushed aside. No disrespect to MTV. I'm not saying that that, that they did this to us. It just was sort of a, a byproduct of, of their rise. And so um, somewhere in there, you know, we took note of the bands that were getting play on MTV and that were attracting a new audience. I mean, all of a sudden, you know, bands like Duran Duran and, you know, and the Culture Club and, and Adam Ant, who would would have done okay a little bit but when you know suddenly had these huge careers as a result of their mtv exposure they became like the colorful you know you know glamorous fun you know provocative uh acts of the of, of the 80s and um you know we couldn't compete with that but what we tried to do was to sort of focus our attention on some of those artists so we actually did cover stories on adam Ant and you know duran duran and big country and you know i mean essentially we were becoming what everybody else was going to become ultimately, which was like an MTV follower, um, because that was where the audience was. But what we didn't really 
consider. And what happened was we then attracted an audience that wasn't our audience. You know, we attracted some of the MTV kids. You know, it was a much younger audience than we normally appealed to. You know, we were kind of, you know, a highbrow in our own shitty way, a highbrow rock magazine. And, you know, our audience were probably, you know, college kids and people in their 20s, you know, 30s, whereas, you know, Adam Ant fans were 15. And so we suddenly started getting readers who didn't really get what Trouser Press was about. And all they did was they saw a picture of Adam Ant on the cover. And we used to get letters going like, how come you're not like big fans of these bands that you're writing about? Like, why did you say that Duran Duran's new album sucks, you know, <laughs> when you put them on the cover? And it's like, I mean, like that literally was like a shock to me. It yeah. was like, wait, why would you imagine that because somebody's on our cover that that's favorable, that that, that it, it implies that we're going to cover them favorably? That never had occurred to me. You know, we thought, you know, newsworthy, val- you know, you know, popularity, interest, you know, those were the factors, not like, are we, you know, do we, can we rave about this and get an ad from the record company? That was never our thinking. So, so MTV kind of pushed us aside in that way. And, and we realized that we were being untrue to ourselves by like, you know, we were kind of in this dichotomy of like writing about bands we didn't really like. And that seemed to kind of defy the logic of why we were publishing a magazine. And so we just kind of like, that and then we ran out of money so you know it's it all those kinds of things i see but yeah but but you're right it, 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 it there was no you know we were feeling increasingly alienated from the music we were writing about personally yeah was there i, I mean obviously you didn't stop writing uh music reviews it reviews not by any stretch of the imagination but was there ever a period say like when the pixies came along or when the alternative stuff went mainstream in the 90s where you ever thought huh the way it happened is the way it happened but boy would it be nice to be running my own publication now rather than writing for someone else's. Yeah. I mean, I watched the rise of spin with some jealousy because, mm. you know, if I'd had a million dollars and, and, you know, uh, the backing of, of, of a large company like penthouse, you know, I probably would have done a lot. I would have liked to have seen the magazine survive into the nineties. Yeah. You know I mean? I, I, I could see, you know, as, as the, the indie world grew in the eighties, you know, that we were kind of leaving it behind, you know, and, and we could have covered it really well. I mean, you know, you know, bands like, you know, the, 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 the children of REM were right in our wheelhouse and we could have covered them, you know, and, and, you know, bands like the Pixies, you know, and all of the, you know, certainly we would have been ready for sub pop, you know, and for, you know, for twin tones, you know, you know, well, for the replacements and for, you know, those bands, you know, and, and we just didn't really have the opportunity, but, uh, yeah, I, I did feel that. I mean, that would have been nice to have to have gone through, you know, at least to the early 90s. So, you know, I mean, that, you know, 30 years after that, you know, I can't say that I feel that way. You know, I would not want to be I would not want to be trying to navigate the world of writing about rock music now. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. No, no, no. You were, you, you, I'm sure you are well aware you were sort of in the sweet spot of you. You were a little bit early when being a little bit early is is right on time i think most yeah. of the time so i i honestly i can't remember the last time it was this challenging for me to uh prep to speak to a guest because i kept getting sidetracked on your site all i wanted to do was see what you said about bands that everybody who will listen to this has heard of and yet i was just like well but i gotta know what he said about spin doctors i, I what, what did i ever think about black 47 so i read a bunch of reviews that will not inform the final section of of this interview but i like if people i, I love the layout i love the way you've you've arranged the review section of um 
of, of trouserpress.com because you just you you essentially devote a paragraph to if a band had a, a, a six album run rather than having to go through six reviews you can read the story of the band uh, the story of the band's studio output it's just such a, a satisfying way you, you could just I trust as somebody who spent a couple hours there it's very easy to spend a couple hours there and I, I recommend that that people do um what generally when you're listening to an album and you know you're going to write a review of it, what's a more exciting feeling when you go, oh my God, this is the greatest thing I've ever uh, heard. How am I going to put this into words and convince everybody of it? Or, oh my God, this is the most terrible thing I've ever heard and I can't wait to find a fun way to say how bad it is. I would say I've gone over the course of 50 years from the latter to the former. You know, I, I, I don't I don't go out of my way to write negative reviews anymore because, yeah. you know, life's too short. There isn't enough stuff. You know, I, I don't have the context to really compare a bad record to a good record anymore because right. I haven't kept up the way that I used to. You know, I mean, when I was the, the, the reviews you're referring to on the trouserpress.com website are were originally based on the reviews that were in the five trouser press record guides. That's the format that we kept was one album, one paragraph per album, sometimes two paragraphs per album. You know, so that that's how that translated onto the website. Um, you know, in in the days when I was doing those books, which ended in the mid 90s, um, you know, I would have like literally like a floor full of records that I had to review. I mean, like I would just stack them up against the wall and like just pull them off and just and bang through them. And as a result, you know, I was making very quick and firm and very uh, rash and hasty decisions about what I thought about the records and then explaining those those decisions. Um, you know, that's a very different form of reviewing than, say, I was doing around the same time for Rolling Stone, where maybe I'd spend, you know, five or six days listening to a record and taking notes on it and, you know, thinking about it before writing a word. So, you know, the, the reviews you see on the Transverse website are very much from the, you know, shots from the hip in some cases. I mean, a lot of that stuff was written by other people besides me. Yes. And it's written, you know, to whatever degree of, of competence and 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 uh, effort they cared to put in. Um, and some of that stuff I wrote, you know, uh, with great effort, but some of it was just really dashed off. So, you know, it was easy in those days. I was much more prejudiced in my views about things. And I don't say that as a bad thing. Um, I mean, I liked what I liked and I hated what I hated. Um, and I, I was very capable of feeling personally affronted or offended by a record that I didn't like. You know, like, I mean, it wasn't just like, this isn't for me. It was like, these guys have made the worst piece of, you know, garbage ever committed to vinyl. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't feel that way anymore. And somewhere along the way, and I write about this in, in one of the Music in a Word books in the introductions, you know, that somewhere along the way, I kind of lost that that courageous spine to like really hate shit. You know, I don't hate shit the way I used to, um, which is good. I mean, I, you know, I'll live longer that way, but, you know. Now, if I write a review and I don't write very many reviews, you know, it's usually something that I it's plot provoked me into liking it, you know, and then I'll just kind of like share my why I like it, you know. So, yeah, it, it's a long it's a long answer to like what I said, which was like I used to do more negative reviewing and I don't do it anymore. Yeah, I feel like this some shade of this subject has come up in a number of conversations on this show where when you're younger, the music 
your identity has so much more of a stake in it. So you can feel sort of personally offended by something. And then maybe you get a little bit older. And even if you hear something that you're like, I'm pretty sure this is terrible. You just, you don't really have a horse in the race anymore. So it, it can't quite offend you on that level. That's about yeah. it. Right. So let me add one thing to this sure. conversation, however, which is that, that, that my admission that I tend to write mostly favorable reviews these days does not attach to the idea that I find very, very troublesome in music journalism, which is that the favoritism that goes along, the, the favorability that goes along with records that sell, you know, what, what, what apparently I'm no longer allowed to call poptimism. Um, you know, the idea that, you know, that just because 10 million people bought a record that that gives it some credence, you know, which I, I firmly and to my death will refuse to accept, you know, I mean, a record could sell five copies and be absolute genius. It could sell five million copies and be absolute rubbish, you know, and, and I will always make a point of seeing the difference between those two things and never allow the, the two factors to, to, to interact with each other, you know, the sales and the, and the, and, and the creative ability, creative achievement. Um, you know, that that's been something that I, I started with and I will die with. And so, you know, I can say that, yes, I'm more inclined to write favorable reviews, but I am not writing favorable reviews of records because I heard that they're popular, you know? So, you know, it's only my own critical judgment that enters into this. Do you think that that, that phenomenon that you just described is a function of a lot of people thinking that the cream sort of rises, which has traditionally not been the case. Traditionally, there's been lots and lots and lots of very, very successful music. Or do you think it might just be that it is so hard if you're a publication trying to be more than a very niche publication to find anything that like that more than 30% of your readers have even heard of, much less listened to, that you can't you can't go around offending the handful of things that there's a very good chance a lot of your listeners happen to like. Is, is there anything to that? You know, there are businesses that you and I have actually been involved with <laughs> that see their um, business model as sometimes not making any sense. Like they, they, they have to require people to do things that are unreasonable in order to, to, to succeed in their business. And that to me is always a marker that you shouldn't be in business. Like if you can't, pay people a fair wage, charge people a reasonable price and provide a you know quality product and still come up, come away at the end of the day with a business that can continue, then find something else to do with your life. And for me, the answer to your question is if you're a magazine that doesn't have the, I don't know, pick your word, I, I don't want to be too prejudicial here, but I mean, courage to stand by its own convictions, you know, or the convictions of its, of its writers, and that prevents you from having a business then tough shit. Don't have a business. You know, I mean, no one says you have to have a magazine. And like, I mean, this is coincidental, but I, I'll, I'll take coincidental credit for it. When Trouser Press stopped having any reason to exist, we stopped existing. You know, um, I mean, I, I, I can't pretend that we we made a, 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 a bold decision to say we no longer have any purpose, so we're going to stop existing. But, you know, to me, you have to stand up for what you believe in. You know, I mean, like, there's no point in being a music critic if your idea of being a music critic is to like suck up to your readers because you're afraid they won't like you. I mean, that's, you know, not, not to put too fine a point out, that's kind of what's wrong with everything in this country these days. You know, I mean, there's a lot of reasons, a lot of ways in which, you know, sucking up to, to audiences has destroyed a lot of things. I mean, we wouldn't be living in a world of, you know, transformer bots chapter 27, 
if it weren't for the idea that somebody thinks you can make money on it and therefore, you know, it's already built in. So let's, let's just keep doing it. I mean, that's a terrible way of, of, of creating culture, you know? And so I would, I would much rather see people go down, you know, in flames by standing up for their critical beliefs than to put out, you know, Ooh, look, Taylor Swift's audience is really fun. And, you know, like I'm 64 years old and I took my granddaughter and man, it was a really great show. I loved it. You know, it's like, you know, fuck you. You know, you're full of shit. You're lying and you're just pretending that you liked it because that's what everyone tells you you're supposed to do. And I'm not speaking of anybody in particular. (laughs) Let me uh, ask you about a couple of specific acts. I don't remember talking about a ton of uh, artists with you in particular, but I somehow came away with uh, the opinion that you are less impressed with uh, Bruce Springsteen as an artist than a lot of members of the rock establishment are or claim to be. Is that is that accurate? Guilty as charged. Yeah. So what, what, can you be a little bit more nuanced on that? I mean, I'll tell you, I, I it's weird for me because it's very easy for me to understand when I love a band and everybody loves that band. And it's kind of not that hard to understand when everybody loves a band and you and you hate a band. You go, okay, I just don't get it. It's not for me. And or everybody's stupid and I'm not. It's tougher when you have somebody like Bruce. And now I, I did grow up in New Jersey and I went to the Jersey Shore to an extent. It really, really is in the blood. I was predisposed to like right. uh, the first the first couple of albums. To me, I think Born to Run is about as perfect as and there's lots of albums that are very very different that are perfect in in their own way i think it is a pretty perfect rock album i also think a lot of people take about 80 song other songs by bruce springsteen about as seriously as born to run despite the fact that they all sound like lesser versions of the songs on born to run and it's hard for me to understand well what but this one's good and then that double album after it was actually just kind of boring and didn't have one track that's as good as the eighth best track on born to run did we all just agree that this guy's the rock and roll jesus and now nobody gets to ask any questions that's sort of my take on bruce i'd love to hear your reaction to that I, I grappled with this in one of my music in words uh, and spent a lot of time really thinking it through uh, from, you know, 40 year later perspective, you know, because my my initial reaction to Springsteen was just visceral. It was like, fuck this guy. He's the worst thing I've ever heard. Mm. You know, I mean, I hated his voice. I hate the way he sings. Um, and I thought the lyrics when I, you know, when I first encountered his first couple of records, I thought the lyrics were just like ludicrous. You know, I mean, like, you know, hazy, daisy, razy, flazy. I mean, just, you know, nonsense, rubbish, you know, just gibberish. Um, You know, I mean, look, I grew up with Bob Dylan. You know, I mean, Bob Dylan was like the avatar of my, you know, teen years. And, you know, uh, I'm not saying that Springsteen has to be Bob Dylan, but like having grown up with somebody who could write lyrics that to this day feel like they were written a week ago and are about something that happened this morning and that are more astute than anything I've ever read by anybody on the same subject, you know, to listen to Springsteen, you know, like, you know, you ride out on the, you know, highways of, you know, blah, 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 you know, it, it just, just knocked me like into like a land of like, this is just really bad, you know? And I, I, I guess what I, what I would add to that is that I disliked Springsteen intensely before he was famous. So, like, I am guilty on occasion of reacting negatively to fame. Like, when somebody, when a when hundred people tell me you've got to love this guy, he's the best thing you've ever heard. I mean, I won't even begin to tell you all the artists that are by acclamation, you know, Hall of Fame critical figures who I dislike intensely. But 
Springsteen, I disliked long before he sold any records. And so I just stuck to it. You know, I mean, um, you know, I mean, there are Springsteen songs that I can tap my toe to and that I, you know, I think are are good songs, you know, um, uh, I mean, I mean, to this day, I think that, you know, someday we will look back on this and it will all seem funny is a great line. I don't um, even, I don't even know that line. What's that from? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> It's it's from a Springsteen song. He's got um, a couple. I think Thunder Road. I think Thunder Road's got a great lyric. And you're right. In the beginning, the the shameless, the the second rate Dylan stuff of the particularly the the first album. I enjoyed it, but if I'm not a Dylan fan, I can see how that would be offensive to a Dylan fan. It wasn't. It wasn't like oh, you're taking, you're trying to be Bob Dylan. It was just like in a world in which Bob Dylan has written, you know, it's all right, Ma. No one should be writing, you know, um, uh. What's the song I'm thinking of? The one that sounds like Along Come, Came Mary. No, I know. Uh, uh, well, I, I actually quoted it on Twitter today, like Madman Bummers, Drummers, and Indians yeah, in the Summer yeah, with the Teenage right. Diplomat. Yeah, 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 Blinded by the Light. Yeah, a lot of the first album. I've even heard live versions where he sings it and 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 is sees the comedy in it now and slips into a Dylan voice oh, at, right, as he's right, performing right. it because he's so. Yeah, of course. I, I was. I was. I had not found my own thing by any stretch at that point. Then the other thing that finally just kind of closed the, the gate for me with, with Springsteen was, and, and look, I mean, I, I will say Springsteen has been in his entire career, an exemplary figure as a, as a, as a performer, as a, as a, you know, a, 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 a rock star. I mean, he's been, a, he's the ideal of a rock star and I have nothing negative to say about Springsteen as a human being. You know, what I do think, what I did think, I don't really care about this anymore. What I did think was that he was, once Landau became his manager, I started really coming to the suspicion that he was being fed the intelligence that he was conveying to people. That like that he wasn't this really brilliant, incisive. I know I, I've read all of Ernest Hemingway's books three times. You know, John Steinbeck is my, you know, is my 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 spirit animal. <laughs> I kind of felt like, and, and there was some evidence to, to support this view, not not enough to take it to court, but enough to to make me feel like I wasn't crazy that, you know, that like basically Landau said, you know, here's this book, you know, there's some stuff in it that might be, be good for you to write songs about. Now, look, to be fair, Bob Dylan opened up newspapers, read about Hattie Carroll and wrote songs about it. So like, I'm, you know, not pretending like every rock star has to be a, you know, a creative has to create completely in a vacuum, but I mean, Springsteen to me became, be, began to get credited as you know, a figure of great intellectual acuity and of, 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 you know, deep thoughts. And I always felt he was just like a guy from the burbs who was being, who was repeating what he was being told. You know, I mean, there was just something about Springsteen that always made me feel like he was kind of dumb in, you know, in, in just the, the average Joe kind of way who was being glorified as, you know, a spokesman for his generation. And that really rankled me, you know, now, I could be completely wrong about this. You know, I mean, I'm sure there's people, I mean, I, I, this is actually, I, I went through all of this in, in, the, in what I wrote about it, you know, because I mean, Pirellis went to his house, John Pirellis of the New York Times went to his house for one of his albums and Springsteen had left a notebook on the coffee table between them with lyrics in it and like kind of allowed John to pick it up and read it, you know, and like, I mean, it, it just struck me that like some publicist had like said, okay, Get one of your books off the shelf, 
put it on the table and make sure it's one of the ones that has a really good lyrics in it, you know, and it had like, you know, 20 versions of like some song he'd written, you know, and like, and, and it became this like part of our Perellis's article about, you know, the creative process about how, how, how deep a thinker he is. And I'm like, okay, this is a setup. I mean, this is exactly how, you know, you spin an artist who you want to seem really smart, you know? And so anyway, that, 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 that's why I, why I can't, can't take Springsteen. I, 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 you know, I, even as somebody who's, I, at the end of the day, I call myself a fan. I, I wrestle with that as well. I just watched the documentary, a very good documentary about the making of Born to Run. And every time he speaks at length, I'm like, are you going to land this sentence? Because you, you, there's a lot of words coming. And also the accent. I'm not from that exact part of New Jersey, but I don't know anybody else. It, John Bon Jovi is the only guy who somehow ended up with the exact same central Jersey accent that Bruce Springsteen has. Uh, let me ask you about the Smiths, as, as I mentioned a while ago. Prototypical example, me reading your stuff, finding your thoughts on the act, the artist Marcy on, on Johnny Marr, provocative, not really sure if you if you like the music. I'm going to quote something that you, um, it's from trouserpress.com. Apologies if you didn't actually write it. The Smith's ability to turn shameless solipsism, I had to look that up, it means uh, navel-gazing, into calc- incalculable stardom was their entirely unique accomplishment. You, you, Trouser Press decided, in, the, in, in, in Trouser Press's view, Johnny Marr was the talent, uh, Morrissey was the enigmatic, charismatic thing that you need to, uh, the, the barker that attracts attention over to, to the carnival tent, and destined to fall flat on his face when he goes solo, lo and behold, he's the successful one. Maybe this guy wasn't, maybe he's, uh, instead of being 100% of a clown, he's only like 85% of a clown. That's what I got. I, I, I think Morrissey's a clown, and the Smiths are maybe like my second favorite band of all time. I just, I wrestle, I wrestle with that. Both those things can be true at the same time. Um, do, do you, have you ever listened to the Smiths or Morrissey solo records for your own personal listening pleasure? Okay. Not a lot, but sometimes. Yeah, in fact, in fact, I listened to a a, a, a Johnny Marr solo record about a week ago, just coincidentally. I mean, it just like, it, like I was going through my Spotify, uh, through my uh, iTunes. I have like a, a billion things on iTunes because sure. I'm old. And and I just like, there's a Johnny Marr record. I haven't listened to that in a while. I'll play that. And I, I thought it was great. Um, you know, the Smiths are a generational band. I mean, there is a generation for whom the Smiths were profound. You know, I wasn't of that generation. So for me, the Smiths were like, you know, they kind of came along and I had to kind of decide whether I liked them or not. I liked them. You know, I mean, I certainly responded to Johnny's, to Mars guitar playing. Um, you know, Marcy's singing obviously was a challenge for everybody. But then, you know, a lot of singers are challenges for people. Um, you know, and and I, I got past that. But, you know, I mean, Marcy set himself up, right? I mean, as a character who you you couldn't really take all that seriously. Um, and... And for, for, for some people, that was incredibly important, right? I mean, for a generation that was like 25 or 20 when, you know, or in college when the Smiths happened, you know, they were like the greatest band of all time, the same way the Pixies were for a generation, you know, and, and I, I was just outside of that. So for me, the Smiths were just a band that I, I had to think about. And so, you know, I mean, but I had a couple of experiences. Um, I mean, I interviewed Morrissey uh, in the 90s and liked him a lot. Uh, for 95% of the interview. And then he said something really reprehensible. And I kind of never quite got over that. Um, and, you know, since then, he said a lot more things that are very reprehensible. And, you know, they kind of have added to his his uh, negative uh, image. Um, you know, but on the other hand, you know, 
there's nothing, you know, I mean, he's a great talent and he's, you know, a great figure and, and he's made a lot of great records. So, you know, I'll leave it at that. Let me ask you, you mentioned the Pixies. Let me ask you about the Pixies. I'm reading through the the entries on their catalog and I follow that into um, into the Frank Black solo stuff. And I was surprised because I, I was not surprised. Favorable reviews for Doolittle, Surfer Rosa. I think that's pretty much, a, you, you probably in the wrong line of work if you are giving Doolittle a bad, a bad review. I don't know. I've never met anybody who doesn't think that the there were rapidly diminishing returns on the Frank Black solo albums almost immediately. But um, the quote that I copied and pasted here on Frank Black, uh, he's really just a semi-talent in postmodern leisure wear. And again, I don't I'm not, think he wrote that. Yeah. Yeah. That's that strikes me as a, as a, as a bit harsh. I thought there was some good stuff on the first couple of, I don't really know those records, so I don't think I reviewed any of them. I, I could be wrong. I mean, I may have reviewed them and had them gone out of my head, but um, yeah. I don't think it was me. But okay, I mean, you know, that's not a not a terrible thing to say, you know. But I mean, he's a great figure again. I mean, another another you know like lifer who's you know stood up for what he believes in, and you know, good for him. You know, I mean, I, I haven't listened to any of his solo records in a hundred years, so I, I I can't speak authoritatively about any of that. Let me ask you about. I don't know how often you listen to to uh, Nirvana's Nevermind anymore, um, but you did. You wrote the review of Nevermind for Rolling Stone. I, I found it noteworthy. The song "Smells Like Teen Spirit" was not mentioned in the review, at least not that I saw. You don't have the benefit, obviously, of knowing what the the popular single is is going to be. What I know what you thought of the album then. You gave it not, you didn't say this is the future of rock and roll, but you gave it, you gave it a, a good review. What do you think about Nevermind now? Because I'm not so sure. I fell for it hook, line, and sinker. I think the music video for Smells Like Teen Spirit had a lot. I remember, I was in high school at the time, I remember me and a couple other kids were the ones who stayed up too late when they would show the cool stuff on MTV, even on a weeknight. I remember talking to my friend Tom and going, did you see this band? What is that? That is so cool. But even when I listened to the album, to, to me, I understand where you might have been coming from. It's not the standout track to me. I, I feel like the album has aged well. The single maybe has not, despite the fact that was the tip of the spear, not just for the album, not just for the band, but for essentially an entire decade. What where what do you think of Nevermind with the benefit of hindsight? Well, I've actually written extensively about that again because mm -hmm. that was a uh, a little a hallmark of my career in an unintentional way. Um, I can't explain why I didn't mention Teen Spirit. I have no idea. I, I actually have the original drafts of the of, of that review, and it's never mentioned. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, I was just too stupid to to to, to recognize that as the song. Um, the, the the funny thing about that review, and I'll I'll get to your to to answer your question, but first as a background, mm. the funny thing about that review is that I pitched Rolling Stone on that record after coming back from the uh, K Records convention in Olympia in August, which was like the greatest indie rock event of all time. And um, while I was in Olympia, Washington, somebody said, "Hey, have you heard um, about Nirvana? They've got this, you know, Bleach had been out for a while, and I wasn't that big a fan, and you know." They've made this Beatles record. That's it's like a punk Beatles record. You got to hear it. So when I got back to New York, because um, I was in, I was covering uh, the, the festival for Rolling Stone. Again, I pitched them on it. They didn't know anything about it. Um, I got back to New York, called Jeff, and got it, got an advance of it, and pitched Anthony DeCurtis, who was then the reviews editor on on the album, and he said sure. And so I wrote the review, and then for reasons 
that had gone to this day unexplained, it, it sat in his queue for about six weeks. So I wrote the review. It, well, not six, it couldn't have been six, but four weeks. I wrote the review like in the beginning of September. The album came out in the end of September and the review ran in October, by which time the record had sold, I think, a million copies and the single was in the charts. So there's this review that basically says another chance for like, you know, indie rock America to take a crack at it. It won't work, you know, because like, you know, no one ever buys this kind of stuff, but it's a really good record. And there I am, you know, with my ass hanging out the window going like, you know, no one's going to buy this record. And then, you know, clearly it had already sold more than any other record that year. So I, I, I was made to look a fool just by circumstance. Um, there were that album, you know, I don't know that it's aged that well. You know, I mean, it, it, it feels old, you know, in a way. I mean, a lot of, you know, one of the weird side effects of getting really old, uh, as I've done, is that the time frames of things just keep changing, right? I mean, you know, The Clash to me are an iconic band. I mean, The Clash are like among my favorite bands of all time. And to think that the music that they made that was really great is almost 50 years old, I find almost inconceivable. You know, I mean, I'd already been through like my teenage years, like my my, my Beatle years, my, you know, British Invasion years, my, my you know, indie rock years. I mean, not indie rock, you know, my, my folk years. I mean, like The Clash came along when I was an adult. And like, I, it's hard for me to recognize that like I've been an adult for 50 years. So that's the problem. But, you know, and the Clash stuff doesn't sound dated to me in the same way. But I, I mean, I, I'm not going to I'm not going to criticize Nevermind because it's still it still stands as the monument that it was then. Yes. You know, I mean, it's a monumental album. No mm -hmm. question about it. You know, but but I guess, you know, with time, it it doesn't seem as radical as it did. You know, and, and it's you know, and, and I, I didn't really love anything Nirvana did after that. Same. You know, I mean, I, I mean, I thought In Utero was just harsh, you know, I mean, you know, the, the Albini production was, you know, spectacularly strong, but, you know, it, I don't know. I mean, it's a little hard to say, but, but uh, it's a funny, it's a funny record because it, it plays such an outsized role in my career because of that review, mm. you know, and I, and no, I did not assign the, 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 the stars to it. That was another thing people have reamed me out about that. It only got three and a half stars. I didn't choose them. You know, I mean, I, I or got three stars or like that. Like, it seemed like that wouldn't have been what I would have chosen if I thought about it. Ira, as as somebody who read a lot of those reviews of albums that nobody but me was going to destined to buy, I have read wild things in Rolling Stone yes. that were so much further off. Just they were albums that didn't happen to end up being Nirvana's Nevermind. I get it because I'm, I'm exposing my kids to music. And you know, there's that thing where you really like something and you're excited to play it for someone. And as you're playing, you're like, hmm, is this as good as I thought it was? <laughs> and it's funny because uh, Cherry Bomb from The Runaways still pops hard. And I'm playing Nirvana to pick one of a million examples, but I'm playing Nirvana for my kids. And I'm like, yeah, if you don't like it, I understand. You don't need to explain it to me. And I never thought, I never could have imagined, because as the I was the guy who hated grunge. I was the guy who wanted suede and, and, and British bands. But to me, Nirvana seemed so undeniable. And after all this time, I think it's a matter of taste uh, whether or not a person uh, still responds to that. I, I've kept you already for too long. I just, I want to, your choice, I gather you're not particularly high on either Rush or the Grateful Dead, if you would want to choose one of those, and 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 if I'm correct in that, and uh, give me some choose one, yeah, yeah, ne neither. No, no, no. I hate them both. Yeah, no, exactly. Which which one? I guess do you hate more, and why? Well, the Dead, because the Dead had been more per pervasive in my existence, whereas Rush 
my experience with Rush is a couple of songs on the radio, and I had to review them once at Madison Square Garden, uh, or I think it was Madison Square Garden. Um, and that's about it. So, yeah, I mean, actually, I saw them open for somebody once for Rory, I think Rory Gallagher, uh, like in the 70s. And, like, you know, they were nobody. They were just a bunch of guys from Canada. Um, no, I, I mean, I mean, Rush, the only thing I hate about Rush is Getty Lee's voice. You know, and Pavement, Pavement nailed that one. But um, uh, the, the Dead, I hate it. I hate everything about the Dead from from start to finish, you know. And and and, and in the afterlife as well. So, yeah, I was I was fortunate. I was working at a daily newspaper when when Jerry Garcia died, and I was really grateful not to make a pun uh, to be out of town when he died, so that I didn't have to actually write through the the, the obituary. Didn't have to eulogize him. There was a terrific. I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, the website, The Ringer. It's primarily a a, a sports website, but somebody wrote uh, a really terrific article on the waning days of Dead and Company, the, the presumably final remnants of the final remnants of the Grateful Dead, and it was a pretty artful piece of writing because. I feel the exact same way about the Grateful Dead that you do, and yet I appreciated what the the person was saying. Yeah, you don't have to like it, but here's here's why we liked it, and here's why we're kind of sad that it's over, and maybe here's some sense of what it might have all meant. And I thought that was an impressive thing to do for a band that yeah, I, I all it meant to me all it meant to me was going to be a lot of creepy guys asking me for money in the Port Authority bus terminal when the dead came to town. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, mean, I like. The the dead the music that the dead produced yeah you know, well partially it's because I've never been a drug user and you know being told a thousand times that like you have to get high to see the dead or to listen to their records it was like well then I'm out you know like I'm not I'm not part of this world because I'm not going to get high to listen to your stupid records um, but also they played too slow and you know there was just this like weird self indulgent like navel gazing about the dead that really killed me you know I was just kind of like. And, and, you know, and and I'll admit it. I mean, their audience kind of is a turnoff as well. I mean, you know, like the hacky sack crowd. Yeah, you know? yeah. I also think, I mean, too. I mean fish, fish, I could, you know, like I don't really care about fish, but I, like, I don't hate them. Yeah. I, I think there's also, you know, a lot of times being a, a rock star or a rock band is about sort of playing dress up and pretending that you belong to some real or imagined past. And I just felt like if I, don't think it would be particularly cool to live in some ramshackle cabin in backwoods Appalachia in 1920. Then why would I want to listen to a band that's pretending that's where they live? On the other hand, and this is sort of timely, let me just put in my word that the second album by the band is one of my all-time favorite records. See, and that's the crazy thing is the band was trying. I, I literally, it wasn't the the more recent Robbie Robertson documentary. It was another one where he's literally talking about the song "Rocking Chair" and he's saying, "I'm driving past a house and I see an old guy in a rocking chair and everybody else is writing songs about this and that. I want to write a song about what's that old guy in the rocking chair thinking about right now." I, I knew as I was saying that I'm literally describing the band to a T. <laughs> And 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 then that's where it gets. You're very good at writing about music because it's very challenging to write about music. Because I would describe the animating spirit of the Grateful Dead almost exactly the same as the animating spirit of the band. One band, I, I almost wore their T-shirt today. The other band, I feel the same way about that uh, that you do. Ira, I've kept you already for too long. I want to let you go. Before I do, let me remind everybody of all of the books that are coming out at uh, and, and are out at trouserpressbooks.com. People have heard Jim Sullivan on the show. They've heard Mitchell Cohen on the show. Now they have heard you as well. And I also, I can't recommend highly enough how much fun a person can have just going through the endless array of uh, music reviews at trouserpress.com. So thank you for all of that. And thank you for your time. Thank you, Mike. Enjoy talking to you. 
Thanks once again for listening. Before I let you go and send you on your way, let me remind you right now, this golden moment is the perfect opportunity to go and subscribe to The Deuce, my podcast with Jesse May Peluso, available wherever you are listening to this. The Deuce. Find it. Subscribe to it. Listen to it. Review it. Like it. Love it. Thanks as always. And uh, whether I see you there or see you here, I look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks, friend.